Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. We are back. You're listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. What's our new tagline? Uh, educating the investors of the South Shore. And the Merrimack Valley. And the WCAP as well. Yes, okay. That's right. Uh, all right. So today's title is FAQs for FAs, uh, Frequently Asked Questions for Financial Advisors. Yeah, that's catchy. catchy. Yeah, it's cute, right? Yeah. Acronym, You're welcome. Acronyms are so, cool. Yeah. So cheeky. Yep. Um, all right. I have I have like 20 questions on the list, and I think we've only gotten to three. So three? Okay. the next few, I think, will be um, we can answer a little bit more quickly. Um I had a these are a couple that I had recently, but uh, there I put them in the market. Um, put, well, this first section is still sort of like market related questions, but I think that that's good and people are interested in that right now. Um, what so what is your market outlook for the rest of the year? My answer, I don't know. What's yours? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I would never pretend to predict the market, and yeah. I you know I could. Um, like I said, I'm personally nervous about like a like uh, from a medical perspective, like a spike in cases of COVID through the fall. Whether that will trans whether that will translate to market turbulence, I don't know. I mean, market turbulence generally is uh, it's common surrounding political elections, um, but oftentimes that 
that the the volatility of the market surrounding a political election is a good thing. So I, mean, uh, I don't know, and I would never pretend to guess. Yeah. Do you have an answer to that? Well, yeah. I mean, ba ba basically the same answer. Um, I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's pretty safe to say there's always going to be volatility. Uh, you just don't know which direction it's going to be uh, in, in any specific period of time. Um, you know, all we, all we know is that o over the long run, the volatility is going to be in the positive direction, or at least historically speaking, it's always been that way. Um, but yeah, you know, my, my best guess is that, yeah, around an election, there's going to be volatility, uh, you know, could, but it, yeah, we, we don't know which way it's going to go. We don't know, we don't know who's going to get elected. Uh, we don't know what else is going to come down the road this year. Um, you know what are going to be what's going to be um you know the future of this of of the virus and you know and a vaccination and or, or is there going to be something else that's going to come you know come to the forefront that we're not even talking about um right, that that, right. that could be good or bad um right. and so it's it is it is virtually impossible to answer that or or know that right um all right next question my friend is nervous about the markets as we approach the election. She is buying gold. Should I do that? Um, this is one that I get here and there as uh, generally I get this question when, when stock markets aren't doing well. Um, so with gold, uh, it, gold, I, I, I did some, I did some re, excuse me, research regarding long-term returns of gold. Um, gold will do well when stock markets don't do well. So people ask about gold frequently when the markets are volatile. Um, so it's, it's, gold, some people have gold in their portfolios. You can own gold via like a gold ETF or you can own physical bricks or what are they called? Bullions of gold. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of different ways to own it, but you can own it like in just in a traditional, in a traditional investment, like an ETF and have exposure to gold, even though you don't have like, you don't necessarily have a claim to gold, although gold ETFs are backed by gold. You don't like, you can't make a claim to your gold unless you have a, a, a very significant position. Um, so long, very long-term returns of gold, I, it seems from my research, it indicates that it generally just like keeps pace with, or maybe slightly outpaces inflation. Like I found a 40 year average return for gold and it's about 2.9%. Inflation over 40 years has probably been two or two and a half percent. Um, a, a hundred year average uh, return for gold. I know that's crazy long, but hundred year average, I think is like 4%, maybe four and a half when inflation is probably averaged like 3% for a uh, hundred years. So it's the type of investment where um, it will do well in, in periods of market decline. So had you established a gold position and you have the gold position as the markets decline, your gold will perform well. It does not do very well when stock markets roar. Uh, it's just kind of a boring old something that doesn't, that doesn't earn you a whole lot of money. It's not really, uh, it's sort of negatively correlated as they say to, uh, the, to the stock market. But yeah, it's like, it's a defensive position to take when someone's super nervous about markets. It it's a defensive position, um, to take because gold has an act gold has a, because it's tangible has an actual value. It's a little bit of a different, um, it's different from the traditional investment when you're investing in companies, uh, 
but it, but like I said, if like if you own a gold ETF, I think the State Street Spider Gold ETF is like the biggest one. Um, I, I you don't have a you can't make a claim like you can't you can't make a claim to your gold and take your actual gold. You can't take delivery of your actual gold. I think unless you have like a multi million dollar position. Um, and even then, I think I think the the financial institution has the right to not deliver you the gold and and to and to just cash out your position instead. But um, I I certainly would never encourage a client to uh, take their entire portfolio and put it in gold. Um, but you know, I I do have some clients here and there that like have actual. Um, Bullions are like the small ones, right? Which I think is different from a brick of gold. I'm not sure about that, but I do have some clients that have that. But um, do you get that question a lot, Kirk, about uh, gold? Uh, well, you know, as you've said, you know, we we tend to get that question more during during you know a bear market or or during you know um, you know times when the market has gone down, and you know my answer is that gold can actually be quite volatile, um, you know, in, in in certain times. So it's it's not it's mm. not a, it's not a stable investment by by any by any stretch, um, and and as you said, yep, it typically does better during bear markets. Uh, it's you know it's typically known as a hedge against inflation. Um, you know, it's, you know, so to me, the downside is it, it's potentially volatile. Um, it does not, you know, it does not pay you any type of income. You know, there are no dividends or anything that, that gold pays. It's basically just a, you know, it's an asset that, that either appreciates or depreciates, uh, depending on the markets. Um, and, you know, if by the, by the time people are asking the question about buying gold, typically gold is already appreciated, right? Because the markets went yeah. down, people have already bought it and, and pushed up the prices. And so if you buy it now, it's, you know, it's, it's expensive, it's overpriced. And if you buy it now and the markets go up, you're going to probably lose money um, because it's it's going to you know it's going to start to you know to lose value um, as people start selling out of it or um, and it's you know so I mean our, so yeah so our general answer is no uh, I actually got that I got that question from you know from a uh, you know a prospective client just the other day um, you know they 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 called they said well we we have a, a significant portion of our of our existing accounts in gold you know how do you feel about that and I said well you know if we're if we're going to you know end up managing that that portfolio for you we're going to we're going to, we're going to, you know, you know, very much try to persuade you to, to sell, you know, all or most of that position because, you know, you know, we, we just don't, you know, we just don't believe in it. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let's move on from that one. Um, how about, uh, this one isn't market really. Oh, uh, this is kind of going down a rabbit hole, Kirk, but this is a fun one because we get it a lot. Uh, can you take me out of emerging market? Mm. So this question, I guess, is I get I get <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, we can. There, I get that's that's a short answer. Um, this asset class or type of invest or type of, type of stock investment called emerging markets, and essentially it's uh, it's investments in companies in emerging economies, underdeveloped countries, um, the largest. Uh, the largest countries in the emerging markets index are, are China, Russia, Brazil, India, right? The BRIC, right? The BRIC, yep. And then, uh, you know, other countries like Venezuela and things like, and countries like that underdeveloped. Um, it's a very, speaking of volatility, that's a very volatile asset class. We can have years in emerging markets where we're up 45% and we can have years where we're down 50%. I mean, that is generally even 
even more volatile than the United States uh, large stock index like the S&P or the Dow. Um, we do have emerging markets exposure in all of our portfolios right now, almost all of our portfolios right now, um, as the actually very long-term returns of emerging markets actually depending on the time horizon you're looking at, but but uh, sometimes long returns of emerging markets actually beat U.S., uh, large U.S. returns. So I think like the 40 or 50 year average for emerging markets actually beats large U.S. Um, and I think it beats small U.S. Last time I took a look at those numbers. Um, but for uh, we're, I, we're getting that question a lot right now because for the last 10 years, emerging markets has been a significant underperformer relative to its long-term average return and also relative to the United States. So for example, the 10-year return of emerging markets, oh, I pulled up an exact report, is like, 10% per year less than the United States. I pulled up the exact, hold on one second, hold on one second. The 10, the rolling 10 year return of the S&P, so intra-year, like August to August, rolling return of the S&P 500 is 13.8%. That's like pretty close to long-term averages. It doesn't even like slightly higher than its very, very long-term average return of what, like 11%, right? So that's a little bit better, even with this craziness this year, but like I, like we've talked about, it's recovered. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty average, maybe slightly on the high side, long-term return for US stocks. The 10-year rolling average return for emerging market stocks as categorized by the MSCI Emerging Markets Index is 3.33%. That's a huge differential, especially because that's 10% per year over 10 years. So that's a significant underperformance of its long-term average. Last time I looked at like a 40 or 50 year uh, average return for emerging markets, it was like 14%. So that's a significant underperformance, but the 20 year return of the S&P five, I'm sorry, the 20 year return of emerging markets beats the United States. I pulled a 20 year S&P 500 over 20 years is kind of boring at 6.45 because you have to remember we had the great recession in there. So this is starting um, starting in 2000 basically? 2000, yeah, yep, yep. So like that was the beginning of the, the um, the dot, tech bubble, dot com, right? Yeah. And, and, and that downturn in the markets, then we had the great recession. So, um, the 20 year return of the S and P 500 is six and 6.4. The 20 year return of emerging markets is 6.94. So it actually beats the U S over 20 years. I did not have time this morning to pull like a 40 or 50 year comparison, but I'm assuming that they're, uh, that they're pretty close and maybe emerging markets actually beats, um, the U S over that period of time as well. Last time I looked, it did, but we're getting this question a lot, um, because of that significant underperformance over the last 10 years, you know, is the, you know, it's a volatile asset class number one, it's been underperformer, underperforming number two this decade, although in 2019, it beat US by, and I wanna say 10%, like it can have great years. So the answer to that question is, you know, if, if you're, we, we rely on, we spend a lot of money and we rely on some very 
uh, well-respected and very intelligent people and institutions for our portfolio research and design. So if you're hiring a financial advisor who is spending lots of money on research and portfolio design, and if and if emerging markets are a component of that portfolio, there's a reason for that. There There is growth potential overseas and, and in emerging markets uh, countries. And often, and couple that with oftentimes, sometimes after a period of underperformance comes a period of overperformance, and maybe the next decade, it'll be a role reversal. Um, so anyway, uh, so so one one argument is well, you know that there's a reason that this is a component of the portfolio. Emerging markets are in a portfolio for return, the long term, right? They're in. You'll have your most exposure to emerging markets in more aggressive portfolios, of course, but they're in there for growth. Uh, they're a volatile asset class. Uh, technically speaking, can we create a U.S. only portfolio? Sure. I have a few clients who are very adamant about. I, I do not want any international and emerging markets exposure and we're able to do you know here and there um you know a custom u.s portfolio that's fine we can absolutely do it um but i just i don't i i think that people are shying away from that asset class because of what's happened in the recent past um and if you look at long-term averages and and if you have faith in the future that you know maybe when trade tensions are are no longer who we nobody's talked about trade tensions in the last few months anyway you know maybe if we have a new uh, you know, uh, president and things like that. And, and, and I don't know, things are different in the trade world. I, I think that there's uh, strong return potential uh, overseas, particularly in emerging market countries like China. But um, what, what's your answer to that question when you get it? Well, I, I, just another, another kind of question that came up first of all in my head was, you know, you know, we, we show people returns and we talk about, you know, we talk, we always tell them, we are talking to people about, you know, focusing on the long term and, and sometimes while well, they ask the question, well, what, what, you know, what, what do we consider to be a long, a long time frame? And, you know, I mean, you could say, I mean, you could say 10 years. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty long time frame, but you know, what you've just illustrated there is that, you know, what happened in the past 10 years can be very different from, you know, what's happened over 20 years. And, you know, that's kind of the, that's sort of the frustrating thing for people, um, you know, specific, you know, particularly again, for people that are, that have a short-term focus is that, you know, the markets have very long, um, you know, long cycles. Uh, the cycles sometimes take a long time for them to to switch over. And, you know, so yeah, over the past 10 years, U.S. has, you know, outperformed emerging markets and international stocks, you know, by, by a significant margin. But that's just one you know, one particular 10 year time frame um, out of, you know, if, if somebody's, you know, if somebody's investment horizon is, you know, 40 or 50 years, well, that's that, that, I mean, that, that's your time frame. It's not 10 years. And, you know, so what happens in 10 years is, yeah, it's, it's, it's significant, but it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the, you know, the end all be all. And, um, you know, and, and again, it goes back to the fact that, you know, in any time frame, you know, be it, you know, be it uh, a year or five years, you know, we nor anybody else, even the smartest, you know, analysts in the world, they don't know what's going to be the best performing asset class, you know, out there, you know, looking forward because nobody knows the future. Yes, you can look at history. Yes, you can look at, um, you know, indicators and, you know, economies and, and try to make educated guesses, but you just don't know. And, you know, you know, historically, 
historically speaking, you know, typically, I, I think I looked at the chart. There was a fidelity chart I looked at. You know, it was basically just it was U.S. stocks versus international stocks, which I think also included emerging markets in there. It wasn't just specifically emerging markets. And you know, they basically trade off. You know, every I think on average it was like every five to seven years. You know, they they trade. You know, who who's the outperformer? Uh, you know, so maybe you know for six years it might you know the U.S. might outperform internationals, and then the next you know five or six years internationals were outperform the U.S. But that's that's on average. So if you look at history and you know, so yeah, so the past ten years uh, U.S. has outperformed emerging markets. You you know you could you could make a pretty good argument that we're overdue uh, for emerging markets to take over and, and start outperforming the U.S. Uh, I mean the U.S. Yes, it's you know it's certainly it's you know it's the biggest economy in the world. It's you know re, you know certainly um, you know politically and things like that you know more stable than than emerging markets. Um, but you know the you know the prices at some point that you know the prices of, of the shares get get to a point where they don't, you know, sustain, you know, the dividends and they have to come back down to earth. And I think that's been the argument for years is that we've, you know, we've been overdue for a correction. And, you know, and when that happens, um, you know, more than likely uh, emerging markets could, um, you know, could take over. Um, that's, again, that's just a, that's, that's a guess. Um, but based on history, uh, I think you could argue that that's, you know, more than likely to happen. We just don't know exactly when that's going to happen. Yeah. All right. I'm going to do one more that's a little bit different, but I think it'll be quick to answer because I know we only have a few minutes. Just a few minutes. Break. Yeah. Um, uh, and I get this one. I've gotten this one a lot recently because interest rates are really low again. Where do I put my cash? Like, where do I put my emergency reserves account? Some people are kind of like, where do I put this money though? I just put it in the bank, right? So everyone should have an emergency reserves account. We, you know, we could we could talk about that, but everyone should have uh, cash in the bank for emergencies. For example, a layoff, a furlough. You know that this is you know these times are a good reminder of why people sh- need to have emergency cash because uh, stuff happens and and it's nice to have cash to fall back on so you're not accruing credit card debt, for example, or borrowing from your house. Um, so uh, everyone should have emergency cash. Old rule of thumb: three to six. months months, six months, uh, six months is great. Some people that are self-employed, maybe a year. Anyway, the question is, where do you put that money right now? And the boring answer is in the bank. And there's, you know, we did, we did a show a couple months ago or a month or so ago about, uh, is there any yield out there like in, in the bank or in fixed accounts or in CDs? And there's really not, um, uh, you know, I know some people that are still in like a promotional period of, you know, 2.2%, per, 2. 2%, but that's like a promotional period and that will end and then the yield will be like zero uh, right now anyway. So um, it's, a, it's a boring answer, but emergency cash um, needs to be liquid, i.e. not invested. It needs to be very accessible. It needs to not be invested. Uh, it needs to be not subject to downward fluctuation. It should be accessible, meaning if it's in a CD, it needs to be the type of CD where there's not a downward penalty or you're not you're not risking capital if you have to break the term of the CD. You, most bank CDs are uh, I'm fine with people putting money in bank CDs, even though there's like no yield in a bank CD right now anyway, but 
Um, but I generally bank CDs are fine because even if even in an emergency, if you have to break the CD, most most I think bank CDs, you're not you're not risking your principal. You're just foregoing a period of interest, and that's okay if that's the worst penalty on that. Um, so emergency reserves needs to be in a savings account, uh, in a high yield something. Although there's no yield right now, money market uh, somewhere. Uh, short-term CD or the type of CD where uh, you're, you're not risking principal if you're breaking the CD, it needs to be very liquid. It should not even be in a bond portfolio. It shouldn't be in stocks. How many times have you had someone say, oh, I have this account over here. Uh, that's my emergency reserves. And then you look at the statement and it's in like a large cap stock fund. <laughs> you know, you're like, that's not, that's, that's not where your emergency reserves should be because that could go down 40% in, in five weeks like we recently saw. Um, so right, it's, it, it's a boring answer, but your emergency cash position should be at the bank. And I'm sorry, there's no yield right now. That won't always be the case. All right. Time for a uh, break. Um, the phone number here in the studio, 781-837-4900 for questions or comments. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we are back. Uh, you're listening to Kirk Reed and Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Uh, the topic today is FAQs for FAs, Frequently Asked Questions for Financial Advisors. Um, we are, you know, this is a call-in talk radio show. The number here in the studio is, believe it or not, uh, 781-837-4900. Uh, so we are back. Alyssa, are you there? here. All right. So, so basically, yeah. So you compiled some, some, some real live questions, uh, via what was it? Facebook or, uh, we solicited, uh, questions via Facebook. Yep. We got some emails and some Facebook messages with questions and then the rest of them, I just compiled based on questions I've had recently yeah. and just over time with new people that we've met over time. So, um, in, in true fashion, uh, I put together a very thorough outline and here we are only about a quarter of the way through it, but that's okay. That means we have an outline for another show at some point in the near future. So, I do want to get into cost because obviously one of the uh, most important questions from an investor perspective is what is the cost to work with a financial advisor? So I want to make sure we get to that before the end of the show. We, we spent a lot more time than I thought on market related stuff, which is perfectly fine. Uh, what crazy times we're in for so many reasons, even though the markets are actually quite respectable right now, but people are still nervous. So, and, and, and actually that's often the case after a period of a uh, significant market decline. It just takes people a while to be comfortable again. So, uh, but I do want to get into cost. So uh, oftentimes early into a conversation or first question I get, or, you know, pe people just want to know what does it cost to work with you? Um, so I just, I'll give a little bit of information about the world of working with a financial professional and professional in general, and then get into the cost, uh, uh, cost structure for McNamara Financial in particular. So first of all, in the world of working with a financial professional, a professional can either be compensated via a commission structure or via a fee. We are right. Uh, we are a fee-only advisor here at McNamara Financial. But let me explain the commission model just so that people can understand the differences. So, some financial professionals are compensated via a commission, which otherwise known as a sales charge. That's essentially a 
uh, an expense or a compensation to an advisor for recommendation of a portfolio. It's like similar to the insurance world where an insurance professional would recommend uh, a suitable uh, theoretically speaking anyway, insurance product or annuity, and they would receive a commission, generally speaking, upfront, a certain percentage of the dollars involved or the investment involved. So commission structure, uh, that's not the model that we're in, but that, that is the structure. It's essentially, uh, so for full disclosure, if you rewind more than 10 years, uh, we did we had like a hybrid structure more than 10 years ago where some of our compensation was via a sales commission. Um, and the reason we uh, moved away from that model is because in, in the commission world, whether it's an upfront commission or a backend commission, well generally like in the upfront commission world, a financial professionals uh, is, is, doesn't have incentive to ongoing care for a client because they received their commission up front, and then in order to get paid again, they need to find new clients and new clients and new clients. So, um, so that sales model was something that we didn't like because we like the model where, um, and of course we've always taken care of our clients, right, ongoing, but, but when your compensation structure aligns with that, so the fee-based model is a model where there is an ongoing fee and there is ongoing care for and advice and services for the clients that we already are caring for. So we like that our compensation aligns with what we want our business to be, and that's to care for our clients ongoing and build a long-term relationship. Um, some commission, some, some financial professionals are compensated via a commission on the back end. Like for example, uh, that this is why, or, or like an ongoing commission where, where this is again, common in the insurance world where, uh, like if you invest your money in, in an annuity, for example, or many types of annuities that you invest your money in, there's, there's a, there's a surrender penalty to leave the annuity. There's a back end commission to take your money out. Um, so sometimes w w when people are asking about working with us, they want to know like, well, what's the penalty or what's the cost if I want to at some point in the future transfer my money out. And, and because there's this, you know, the, we're in this world where, there are many types of investments where there's a cost to get out of them, but that is not the world that we are in. We, uh, they, when you work with a fee-based advisor, there's there's no commission up front, there's no commission on the back end, there's no surrender penalties, there's no cost to to make a change or to transfer out. There's uh, it's this very uh, it's this world where the investor has more freedom in that regard and doesn't need to worry about being locked up in, locked into anything. And I would never want to work with someone, uh, or start a relationship out with them with fear of not being able to make a change or anything like that. So we are called a fee-based advisor. So we charge a fee on an annual basis. Technically it's debited quarterly. So a quarter of our annual fee is direct debited from the dollars that we manage for our clients. It's called an asset-based fee. So it the, the way that we calculate our management fee is such that it's based on the dollars that we manage for the clients. So, um, and I can, I'll get into the specifics in a moment, but I just wanted to explain, um, like for example, if we have a client that has uh, $500,000 and 50,000 of that is in cash and 25,000 of that is in a stock that he inherited from his grandfather. Um, and, and you know that cash and that stock position, if they wanna keep it, we're not managing that. That's just kind of like tucked over to the side. 
Uh, so in that example, we, we are managing 425,000 of their dollars in our portfolios. And that's, that's what we calculate our fee based on the dollars that we're actually uh, managing, ongoing, tweaking, uh, uh, monitoring, rebalancing, switching out investments when we see fit. Those are the dollars that we calculate our management fee on. Um, so, uh, uh, so that's why they call it an asset-based fee. So in the world of fee-based advisors, generally, well, there's basically three, and you can correct me if I'm missing one, Kirk, but there's basically three models. One, uh, one way to calculate a fee is to, is to well, one fee is called a flat fee, where you, an advisor might charge, for example, 1%, pretty, uh, fairly average and average fees in our industry are like a percent, percent and a quarter per year. Ours is tiered and I'm going to get into the details in a moment. Um, but a flat fee would be say, for example, it's a percent of the dollars that they manage. That's, that's an easy calculation at whatever, whatever given quarter, when they debit that fee, it's just a flat calculation of that percent. That's not how we do it. Ours is a little bit different, but flat fee is one option in the world of, uh, one option that, uh, that advisors have in terms of modeling their uh, their practice. Um, there's also some advisors that charge um, a flat dollar fee. And this is fairly rare, but some advisors charge, uh, they would quote a client an annual fee in terms of dollars, like $2,500 a year, for example, $5,000 a year. And, that, and they would direct, they would just divide that by four quarters and they would debit that quarterly regardless of how the accounts are moving in value. That's fairly rare, but it's more like a flat dollar amount fee for services regardless of what your portfolio, how your portfolio is performing. Um, our fee is what's called tiered. So we have different breakpoints essentially. And I was gonna pull a specific so that I had some, um, some specific numbers to give. So our fee is the first quarter million, 250,000 that we manage for a client. Our fee on those assets is 1.05%. And I always say that that zero is very important. I never want someone to look at that and see that five and think that it's a percent and a half because in my opinion, a fee of 1.5% is, is is high. Our our fee at the first level, uh, two hundred and fifty thousand. So dollars from zero and up to two hundred and fifty thousand. The fee on those dollars is one point zero five percent. So just a touch over a percent per year. Then we have a break point. So dollars above two hundred and fifty thousand and up to a million. So that's the next seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars that we manage for our clients. The fee drops to zero point nine percent. And then for our clients that have more than a million, the fee on the dollars above a million and up to 2 million, the fee drops to 0.7. And then there's another break point at 2 million and all dollars over 2 million, the fee drops way down to 0.35%. So what happens is, and first of all, um, you know, last, last time I did research, Kirk, I don't know if you've done this recently, but average fees in our industry are like a percent to a percent and a quarter. So I'm pretty comfortable saying that our management fee we think is fair and we think it's like on the low side of average in the industry. And, and also we have some very long tenured clients that have, you know, lower fees because they've just very long tenured and, 
And and as you work with someone for a longer period of time and they age into retirement and things like that, that the services they require, generally speaking, um, are, are they tend to be less demanding, I guess. Not that, uh, I shouldn't say demanding, not that our, our clients really demand anything. They're, they tend to be less, um, uh, require less services, I guess, as we work with them longer. So we have what's called, so for people that have over a quarter million dollars with us, 250,000, they have what's called a blended fee. So for example, when we manage about, when we manage 500,000 for a client, that fee based on that tier blends to 0.975% because part of their dollars are, uh, the fee is 1.05 and part is 0.9. For someone that has a million dollars, the blended fee is 0.938%. Someone that has a million and a half, 0.858% is their blended fee. So you can see as dollars under management get larger, our blended fee is reduced because we have because they're hitting the more have more dollars at the lower fees. Someone that has two million, the fee blends to 0.819, 3 million, 0.663. Um, and one more, just because I have it on my sheet, 4 million, 0.584. And we do have some economies of scale with managing larger dollars, but but people with larger um, so so we do feel like that the breakpoints are are fair. And um, but you know people that have larger dollars have just generally speaking require more advice and more planning services and more services and have more accounts to manage and things like that so we do we do feel like that the tiered federal this uh, fee schedule is tiered for uh and we and we do think that that's fair and i just wanted to add one other thing to that kirk and then i'll let you add to that um uh that that's the the numbers the fees that i were just talking about those are annual we do debit four times throughout the year. So one quarter of those annual blended fees are debited quarterly quarterly from our client accounts. And it's based on the average daily value of those client dollars that we're managing. And we think that that's fair as well. Another option that advisors have in terms of calculating their fee is to do a snapshot at the end of the quarter and to say, okay, what was the value at the end of the quarter? And that's how I'm gonna calculate my fee. We do an average daily balance. We think that that's fair because you're capturing the fluctuation throughout the quarter and really looking at a true average. And also in most quarters, as you know, as you talked about two thirds of the time markets go up, in most quarters, the value at the end of the quarter is the highest value, right? So that would be unfair for the investor if we were snapshotting at the end of the quarter. That's how we feel anyway. Um, and we feel like it's more fair to do an average. So I get that question every single time I speak to someone uh, that people wanna know what what is the cost to work with you. And I'll, I'll go over sort of one other layer of cost in a moment, but uh, but advisory fee, obviously people wanna know about. Do you have, do you have anything to add to that? Um, so one thing on that, so like on, on our, on our you know, tiered fee schedule is, you know, if it's a, if it's a, couple, you know, if there, if there's more than one person in the, in the household, so to speak, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, husband and wife or, you know, spouse and, you know, partner, partner, or even, even children, if there, if there are children accounts, um, you know, associated with that household, you know, they all get, all of those accounts get aggregated, uh, as far as the, you know, the break points go. Um, so everybody, all the money gets added up, you know, which is obviously in the, in the client's best interest, uh, as far as that goes. Um, and I just wanted to say, you know, going back to, um, 
you know, kind of the differences. I don't, you know, I, um, you know, the differences as far as, you know, well, what's, you know, what's better, you know, for the client. Um, you know, obviously that's up, up, to, up to them to decide, but, you know, kind of the differences are. So like in our, you know, in our um, setup, you know, you're paying us, you know, on an ongoing basis and, you know, and you're in, and, and we get, you know, we get, you know, our, our fees are based on, you know, how your accounts, you know, how, how big your accounts are and how they're doing. And, you know, so really our, you know, our only incentive is to, is to grow your money because as it gets bigger, you know, we, we earn more as well. Um, and so we're kind of, you know, we think that that makes sense. Um, you know, from a relationship point of view, um, you know, our, our only incentive is to grow your money uh, so that we, you know, we make more as you make more. Um, you know, on the, and I'm not, I'm trying to be, um, as far as the other, you know, the commission, uh, commission-based model, um, not to say that it's good or bad, but, you know, you just have to be cognizant that, you know, if you work with somebody that, that gets paid on commission, well, you know, their, their incentive, you know, well, you, theoretically is that, you know, the more that they sell or, or, you know, that's how they get paid. And, you know, if they, you know, if they suggest, you know, changing your portfolio, well, they might get paid when that happens. And, you know, whether or not in, that's in your best interest, it could be, it could be, it certainly could be, but, but maybe not. Um, and you just have to kind of be, be aware of that. Yeah, not and right. Certainly not to imply that that um, anyone on a commission structure that any advisor on a commission structure doesn't have good intentions. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely not. Do. Absolutely not. Um, yeah. But yeah, we just didn't like those and sort of those were just some conflicts of interest that we were uncomfortable with. So, and I feel like the world then the world of investment advice uh, and and asset management that world has. Uh, gravitated pretty significantly in the last 10 years to the fee-based model that we are currently in. And I think that there's good reason for that. Um, and and I don't know, you know, that the, the statistics, but many, many, many advisors have transitioned their business away from commissions and toward a fee-based advice, you know, uh, compensation for advice and services model. Um, one other thing that that I feel very strongly being transparent about there's there's another I think that first of all our industry as a whole does not disclose cost well at all cost of investments that people own are hidden in the tiny fine print of those little booklets and annual reports that come in the mail um, it's very, very, very hard for the average investor to understand what they are paying to own an investment or to have an investment professional. There's not, there, there's very few people that understand that. Um, and, and I think some people are under the misconception that even if they have an, some people are under the misconception that they don't have a cost to have their investments. But I will tell you right now that anyone that is an investor that owns mutual funds or ETFs, that trades, that has an investment professional, anyone in that world has a cost for uh, own, own for those services. Um, but it's just very, very hard to find. So I like to be transparent about cost. I think that one good thing about the fee-based model that we're in, where our advisory fee is debited from our client account once a quarter. It shows on their the first uh, 
the, the first statement of the quarter for all our clients under the transactions, they will see a line item for advisory fee. So it's very transparent. Our clients know what they are paying us. And we're very proud to say we have very little client turnover. So, so they know what they're paying us. And if they didn't think it was worth it, they wouldn't stay. Um, so it's transparent, number one. Anyone that works with a financial professional, well, when you work with a, anyone that works with a financial professional has two layers of cost. So number one, the, the advisory fee, but also a cost for your underlying investments. Like I said, anyone that is an investor that owns mutual funds or ETFs in your 401k or IRA or brokerage account or whatever, you have a cost for that, but you have no idea what it is. That cost is called an expense ratio. And it is like, that is that is what is not disclosed well in our industry. But if you think about like, if you own uh, a mutual fund from whatever financial institution, there is a cost for that because that financial institution that's running that mutual fund has costs. And, and, and an expense ratio is your cost of ownership of that investment. And it is, you can think of it as like a haircut on return. So for example, like average cost to own a mutual fund is something like three quarters of it. For a long time, it was like a percent per year. That has come down a bit. I wanna say it's like closer to three quarters of a percent per year in terms of that expense ratio, that cost to be invested in a mutual fund. A mutual fund, you know, it pools investors' money together and then it invests in underlying securities, stock bonds, both, whatever, whatever type of uh, mutual fund it is. So there, so you have a haircut on your return. So for example, if you're in a mutual fund and the expense ratio is three quarters of a percent, and if that mutual fund returns 10% in a given year, your return, you're credited about nine and a quarter percent because there's a little haircut on your return. So everybody has that cost, but the costs are, are, are sort of all over the map. Some non-traditional hedge fund type mutual funds, they might charge two or two and a half percent expense ratio. And then there are lower cost investments, index funds and ETFs or exchange traded funds are, are a lower cost type of investment where you might be paying a tenth of a percent in terms of that net expense ratio. So um, I, again, I like to be transparent with the, with our clients about about uh, costs all in. And, and I, I just think it's important for people to understand that. Uh, we can always pull reports and give people information about the, about the cost for their funds. But we're pretty proud to say that we try to put portfolios together and we do bear in mind that expense ratio and that cost to the client. And our portfolio, uh, the, the cost for the portfolios that we recommend to our clients are, are I'm pretty comfortable saying they're well below industry averages. I pulled some research recently and you know, our balanced portfolio, for example, we have a few different versions, but our balanced portfolio, for example, the costs range from about a tenth of a percent to about four to five tenths of a percent, so about half a percent. So, so pretty low compared to industry averages. Our all stock portfolio, the the range was like uh, five, five hundredths of a percent to like a point one percent to or a tenth of a percent. So. Um, so I, I like to be transparent about that, but how many times have you asked someone or you know, gotten into this conversation about, the, about their cost to be an investor and they like have no idea? 
That, um, yeah, that's, but, I, but I like to be upfront about it. I was going to say, yeah, that's that's not a question we get too much. Is you know, you know, we're talking about questions that we do get, but yeah, most people most people don't ask. Well, you know, what's what's your expense? Yeah. What, what's the, what's the expense yeah. ratio of, of the funds that you use? Um, yeah, but it's but it is you know it's a it's part of the part of the puzzle. Um, and you know, as you mentioned, so like, and you know, as far as mutual fund, you know, actively managed mutual funds, you know, they're not all created equal, uh, and yet. And yet, some of them are, are more expensive than others. And you know, are, are, is it worth it? You know, are you getting are you getting more return? Uh, you know, are you get are you getting a higher net return from these more expensive funds or, or not? Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you can look at history and, and try to determine that. But you know, history doesn't always tell the whole picture because you know we you know we don't maybe it's gonna maybe it's gonna you know. Um, you know, shoot the lights out, you know, over the, over the next 10 years. And, and you don't know that, but, you know, history is really all you have to go with. And, um, you know, we're looking at, you know, that's been an age old debate about, you know, active versus passive. And this is a whole nother thing. And again, that's, a, that's not a question people ask, you know, do you, are you more active or passive? And people don't ask that question, but, um, right, right, right. You know. I actually, I put this on the list. Well, I, I did want to go over cost, of course. And most people ask, well, what is your fee or what are the cost to work with you? Um, but I did get the question in the last week, something like, I heard about this uh, other cost called an expense ratio. And can you explain that? Oh. And this, this particular person had gone through our ADV, which is a, which is a disclosure document that's publicly available. We, uh, we make that document available to the securities and exchange commission. It's on our website on the homepage on the very bottom. This is, it's like a, it's like a disclosure document about our firm and sort of everything you need to know about our firm. And, um, yeah, the, the, it's, it's very rare that we get that question, but Sometimes I'll get the question like, what are your portfolios cost? And, and people might not use the term net expense ratio, but, but many, some, some people, that, the people that do their research and their homework before chatting with an advisor, they sort of know that there's two layers of cost to ask about. Um, and, and I think it's great. I think that people, you know, I, I love it when people come in prepared with all these questions. I know they've done their homework. I know they're you know, taking it seriously and we can, we can engage in uh, a, a great conversations as a result. So, you know, again, in this world of, well, the internet's been around for a long time now, but um, this world where in, you know, uh, Google has every answer to every question, uh, people are, people are pretty prepared and, and know a lot more than they did uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, all right. So we only have a couple more minutes. Um, how about really quick under the under the topic of cost? Uh, are there any other costs I will be responsible for? And and uh, the answer is very little. Like we're we're in this new world in the last what six eight months that trading transaction costs are almost zero. Uh, we we had this the, the large custodians the Schwabs and the TD Ameritrades and I'm not sure about fidelity but the large custodians of the world sort of had this like race to zero and and um and and many financial institutions now will place trades for clients for zero cost the the financial institutions are making money in other ways um but trading costs or transaction costs now on a buy and a sell of like mutual funds and etfs and stocks are for the most part zero there definitely are mutual funds that trade 
for cost and some financial institutions, uh, you know, are, they're all structured a little bit differently. But uh, once in a while, there are transaction related costs that a client are responsible for. But in this sort of in this new world of the large institutions do a lot of trading for no extra cost. Um, and, and again, they're 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 making money in other ways, which might be a whole nother show. But um, those costs are very little. I don't know, 20 bucks a year, 30 bucks a year, like would be on the high side for an account probably these days uh, in our world anyway. So, all right. I know we have to wrap it up. Yeah, it sounds like um, sounds like we're just about yeah. done. Yeah. The, the, this, this show has been, I thought, great. This was FAQs for an FA. Uh, and I hopefully that was helpful. We tried to hit on some high points of market-related questions uh, during COVID and, uh, you know, fee-based questions. And, and we have a lot of other, actually, questions. And I think we'll do this show again in the coming weeks or months. So I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined by my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed, there in studio. And I got the luxury of being home via Zoom today. Uh, and you're listening to McNamara on Money. You can find out more about us at McNamaraOnMoney.com or McNamaraFinancial.com. Is it time to wrap it up? Yep. Alrighty. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.